I am Robert M. Price, the Bible Geek. To me, the word geek suggests an obsessed hobbyist, and that would be true in my case. On the one hand, I am utterly fascinated with the Bible. On the other, I do not revere the Bible as divinely inspired and authoritative. I used to, but perhaps ironically, it was avid study of the Bible that eventually convinced me it was not the Word of God. And the loss of religious faith in the Bible made it both more interesting and more understandable. I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there is nothing more pious than understanding the text. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, eh, let's say we try to understand it together. Alrighty. Uh, this is uh, from Lambert Block, uh, uh, Blockhees. I, I can never get that Dutch right. Anyway, so this, over, now this, this one is really going to stump me, i got to admit right at the outset. Over the last year, I've read quite a bit about the early history of Christianity, among others also some of your books. However, I'm looking for a piece of information which I haven't come across yet. Maybe you could point me in a good direction. There are a number of different views on the origins of Christianity. For example, starting with Jesus, starting with Paul, starting with dualism slash Marcion, starting even later. Is there a work that gives a good overview of the different models of how Christianity could have started, and which also indicates main characteristics of the different views, key defenders of each of the views? and the key problem, key problematic issues with each of them. Uh, well, uh, Lambert, I um, find myself uh, stumped here. There should be such a book. Maybe one day I can write it. Uh, but I, you know, if there is, it's eluding me. Uh, I've read books from all different viewpoints, and it may be the best thing one can do is to just read various representatives and, and decide for yourself, though that's not what you're asking, I know, but uh, since I don't have a good title to suggest, um, let me suggest uh, several uh, important books that argue different uh, theories of Christian origins. Uh, one is John Dominic Crossan's book, The Birth of Christianity, discovering what happened in the years immediately after the execution of Jesus. So the birth of Christianity, discovering what happened in the years immediately after the execution of Jesus by John Dominic Crossan. Uh, one that I like very much uh, is by Rodney Stark, a sociologist. It's called The Rise of Christianity. That is just really amazing stuff, how he uh, rounded up all the data about the, just in terms of social movements and categories, how it started. I, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it's amazing, very impressive. Of course, a classic one is F.C. Bauer, B-A-U-R, that's Ferdinand Christian Bauer, Paul the Apostle of Jesus Christ, and then there's a long subtitle, 
that's a two-volume um, book from the 1800s, uh, now published in one volume by Hendrickson Publishers, and uh, easy to get, very good book. Uh, so um, then, oh yeah, he also has another book that is not as easy to find, The Church History of the First Three Centuries, but if you can get it, it's a goodie. Uh, let's see, one I read just recently that um, deals with Christianity as evolving out of Essenism, and it's not a crackpot sort of a book, as, as some of these are. Like, once I was in a used bookstore in Montclair, New Jersey, and uh, I was looking at the religion section, and I picked up a book about how Christianity developed out of Essenism, and uh, this uh, older lady who was uh, standing right by me noticed it and said, oh, uh, you know, I was an Essene in a previous life. Well, I guess she could have settled the question. But um, the book is called The Origins of Christianity, an Exploration by Etienne Nodet. I don't know how to pronounce that. Etienne is E-T-I-E-N-N-E. Nodet, or Nodet, you got me, is N-O-D-E-T. Uh, and Justin Taylor. And uh, it, it takes a really interesting, neglected approach of looking at evidence you, you normally don't see even discussed about uh, how Christianity did begin as a type of Essenism. Um, I guess I should just go back one for a second. Bauer has the famous a theory that you had Jewish Christianity and you had uh, Hellenistic law, free Christianity, and the two were bitter rivals at first, but eventually settled their differences and combined into uh, Catholicism. Uh, some people try to discount it by saying it's Hegelianism, but that's really a lot of nonsense. Okay, another one is Burton L. Mack, M-A-C-K, A Myth of Innocence. Uh, Mark's Gospel and Christian Origins. Uh, that is very fascinating, and it talks about the possible ways in which Christianity evolved from several different roots. Uh, he speaks of the Jesus movements and the Christ cults and how they eventually came together. Elaine Pagel's book, The Gnostic Gospels, I found uh, really fascinating. Uh, she uh, tries to look at the, the um, Nag Hammadi texts and to reconstruct from them what the living, breathing Gnostic Christian community was like. And because um, there's a tendency it seems to me, among scholars, to implicitly treat those texts as if they were just some kind of ancient science fiction novels. Uh, but uh, no, as Pagel says, they're the scriptures of a living religion, a lot at the time, anyway. And uh, it's really good. Now, I don't think she says Christianity evolved from Gnosticism, I, I know I have read books where people suggest that and who say that um, so-called Orthodox Christianity is a kind of a 
nursery school version of this and that Gnosticism was prior. And I kind of think that is true, actually, uh, but uh, it's certainly debatable. Um, uh, Mac and uh, Crossan both think that Jesus was a cynic-like uh, philosopher and that Christianity somehow develops out of that. So there are a lot of views. I deal with a little bit of this in my forthcoming book, Judaizing Jesus, uh, where I deal with uh, theories that uh, Christianity became, well, well evolved from a uh, westernized Buddhism spread by missionaries uh, in the uh, as far back as the second century BCE. Something that sounds kind of crazy, but is not. It just sounds so odd because nobody ever says it anymore. But if you bracket that and look at the case on its own merits, it's quite fascinating. And I deal with um, other possibilities like Gnosticism and Cynicism and uh, and so forth. But that that's not really good enough for what you're asking for. Maybe sometime I will do that, or maybe you will. Very interesting stuff. Okay, this is from Jim in Charlotte, North Carolina, where my wife, Carol, is going uh, down to see an art exhibit in a couple of days. Genesis and Exodus use the term Pharaoh uh, as if it's a proper name, while also referring to the king of Egypt. Uh, Ezekiel refers to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, uh, again, uh, like Pharaoh is the name and king is his title. The same is true in 1 Kings 3.1 and 1 Kings 9.16. Uh, the only verses I could find, with one more exception below, that breaks this pattern uh, involves Deuteronomic, uh, sorry, involve Deuteronomic writers. 1 Kings 11.40 speaks of Shishak, king of Egypt, and 2 Chronicles 12.2, Shishak, king of Egypt, who took treasures from the temple and is alleged to be the actual pharaoh uh, Sheshonk, I guess it is, uh, the first. 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles refer to Necho, variously as King Nico of Egypt, Pharaoh Nico, and Pharaoh Nico, King of Egypt. Uh, who is uh, who is supposed to be Necho II? Jeremiah 44.30 refers to Pharaoh Hophra, King of Egypt. He is supposed to be the same as Pharaoh Apris, although I couldn't find the reason for this identification other than the assumption of a particular year Jeremiah is writing. What's going on here? Well, I uh, don't know, I'll admit, but it occurs to me that what you might have here is um, writers who figured that their audience, their readership, might not understand what Pharaoh means uh, do want to preserve the title but immediately define it kind of like in the gospel of john i know that christ is i, uh, what is it? I know that uh, messiah is coming 
called Christ. Uh, so um, it, it might be like that, just saying, well, yeah, this is what he was called, but of course it means he was the king of, of Egypt. Some didn't feel that was necessary. I'm, I'm just guessing, though. Of course, it could be that someone is, one of the kings is just called Pharaoh when they didn't know the name, uh, when the story didn't preserve it. Uh, and that's always a possibility. But beyond that, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Uh, interesting question. Uh, boy, I'm really kind of uh, not doing too great on any definite answer today. Hey, now, this is from Christopher J. Anthony Palmero. Uh, he says, In my last question, Theophilus, I asked about the Therapeuti. For this email, I have two questions about the New Testament era. One, uh, in the Amazing Colossal Apostle, uh, you do a survey of the various theories on how the Pauline letters were collected. You tentatively settle on Marcion uh, being the best candidate for the first collector of the Pauline epistles. I wanted to know if you could speculate on the logistical process of how Paul's letters could have been assembled and collected. For example, could Marcion have written to various churches asking them to take inventory as to whether they had any Pauline letters, asking them to forward them? Or would he have taken the initiative and visited each church individually, searching their archives to find any such letters? I guess this question would, would apply to any scenario where the letters were first assembled by a collector, even if the collector were an original disciple of Paul, like conservative critics believe. Uh, for instance, uh, Goodspeed thought it was Onesimus, the runaway slave whose skin Paul saved, uh, and that he eventually not only got converted under Paul's tutelage, but finally became a bishop because... Uh, in, I believe, the uh, Ignatian epistles, we read of a bishop Onesimus. And, of course, that could just be coincidence. It's, these names were you know, not unique to one person, but it's uh, an interesting guess. And I do deal with that in that uh, chapter. Um, uh, the... It's easy to imagine that somebody would have gone to those uh, churches, any church that was believed to have been founded by Paul, and said, uh, do you have anything written by Paul? I'd like to make a copy if you do. And uh, they had to go into the, uh, the church library, and they found that some of the letters hadn't really been well taken care of. I mean, that's what most scholars, I think, believe happened with 2 Corinthians, which appears to be a kind of a jigsaw puzzle of uh, at least three different letters, maybe more than that. Walter Schmidt says first and second Corinthians, as well as Philippians, uh, are are like are jigsaw puzzles that you can delineate by using form criticism a whole mess of short letters. And that's one thing about the the epistles. They they certainly are much longer than ordinary letters in antiquity, which were just like, you know, that would fit on a postcard. But, you know, there were treatises in the form of letters, and so, you know, could be authentic letter material. 
But um, here's what uh, I think gums up the works on this. The um, I think that the addressees, uh, the implement, say the narratives, so to speak, of these letters, the people who are mentioned as those who receive and read the letters in the churches, I think they're fictive. I think that uh, there weren't necessarily any Pauline congregations in any of these cities, and uh, because the first actual Paulinists we know of uh, from external testimony and so on were Marcionites and Gnostics, uh, and uh, and there's also the possibility that that uh, for instance Corinthians and First and Second Corinthians are of course two of the major ones. Uh, that there could be some sort of a pun on Corinthians, kind of a sect of Jewish Gnostics. I don't know, but um, it, it occurs to me that that might be the case. Uh, just like Matthew is uh, kind of a handbook for discipling uh, new converts, and the name looks suspiciously like Mathetai, disciples. Uh, so... Who knows? But if they are fictitious, then it isn't a question of going anywhere to get them. Uh, and you would have to envision these letters and epistles being written by educated leaders of various uh, sectarian groups to promote their views, attributing them to Paul, which is certainly not an unheard of thing in those days. I mean, in the Pauline epistles themselves, right? In case you hadn't noticed, several times Paul says, now I know there are a lot of spurious letters with my name on them, but the, this is the mark of authenticity in the real ones. It's like there's a, the Bible itself tells you that there was a thriving cottage industry of pseudonymous pseudo-Pauline uh, epistles, so it shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, and uh, you'd still have to, but they were, it seems to me that uh, you, you can see Marcionite material, especially in Galatians. Uh, you can see Corinthian um, and Marcionite material in, in Corinthians. And uh, Colossians appear to, appears to me to be a kind of a proto-Valentinian Gnostic text, pure and simple. And so they may have, just as there are Catholic um, Pauline pseudepigrapha like the pastoral epistles. Well, um, Marcionites uh, collected the apparently the first batch of the, the ten epistles, that is, with all of them except the pastoral epistles that were written in response to Marcion by probably Polycarp. And uh, so they didn't have those, those three, they didn't exist yet. But this was the Apostolicon, the, uh, the book of the Apostle, which was the chief scripture of the Marcionites. Um, uh, so, uh, and in fact, uh, Marcion was so closely associated with the heretics that uh, you, you find them avoided like the plague uh, in throughout the second century until late when you have uh, uh, people like uh, apologists for orthodoxy like Irenaeus and Tertullian trying to co-opt the heretics by, uh, uh, for one thing, padding out the epistles and cutting stuff out of them uh, that would 
uh, to make them more orthodox friendly and then accusing the Marcionites of having um, edited them. I think just the opposite is what happened. But they tried to beat the, the Marcionites at their own game. Uh, but that was the only, and they, they figured they would co-opt the Marcionite movement, which was very successful. Well, you know, maybe those people have a point that uh, the Old Testament isn't adequate to our purposes. I mean, they don't even like it. Uh, we do. Uh, we don't want to get rid of it. But the idea of a uniquely Christian scripture, uh, that's not a bad idea. Uh, and so they gathered the the Pauline material from Marcion, edited it, and and picked the the remaining scraps that people associated with James, Jude, John, and Peter, uh, though they're obviously either anonymous or pseudonymous, uh, and and so forth. Um, and uh, so the, eventually, you had Orthodox Christians, if you want to call them that, or Catholic Christians um, appropriating them too. But originally, they seemed to have been the concern only of uh, Marcionites and Gnostics. Take a look sometime at Elaine Pagel's book, The Gnostic Paul, where she rounds up all that can be found of Gnostic interpretations of the Pauline texts. Very enlightening, quite fascinating. I hope to be on uh, one of uh, Derek Lambert's Myth Visions, Myth Vision podcasts, along with him and Elaine Pagel soon uh, to uh, discuss that stuff. Yeah, and now this is an interesting. Um, uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. There's a second question. I've sometimes heard apologists state that the Gospels are written in a style of Koine Greek that is distinctive to the first century. I recently read a book by Charles Waite called The History of the Christian Religion to the Year 200. He addresses this argument by stating that the writing style of the New Testament documents was popular not only in the first century, but also in the second and third, but he didn't provide any dates supporting this. Do the conservative critics have a strong argument when they say that the style of the New Testament indicates a first century origin? Uh, the only thing I know germane to that is that you can see a, a, a somewhat of a shift of vocabulary in uh, the Pauline epistles. I'm sorry, the uh, pastoral epistles, which is a big tip-off that they are later than the other so-called Pauline epistles. Uh, but uh, I don't. But that's not exactly a matter of Koine Greek, which just meant popular common Greek, as some call it street Greek, as opposed to more eloquent Attic Greek or classical Greek. You find something more like that in uh, Luke, Acts, and the Epistle to the Hebrews. But I don't know about this. My uh, impression was that it was the uh, first couple of centuries anyway. I've never heard it argued that the, the language was restricted, that that style of Greek was restricted to the first century. You know, they, they used to think that uh, Koine Greek was uh, Holy Ghost Greek, 
that it was some special inspired language. This was before they made numerous discoveries of a whole mess of papyrus documents uh, from uh, the first and second, I guess, century. Letters, contracts, all kinds of things, just regular old uh, everyday documents that had been used to, believe it or not, to stuff alligators that were buried with people in their tombs in Egypt. Um, well, that, that showed them, well, this is, this is not some distinctive ecclesiastical, much less inspired Greek. It's just the Greek that the common people used at the time. Um, so you don't hear much about Holy Ghost Greek anymore. Um, oh yeah, uh, personal note, uh, thank you for all your work over the years, and you have been more like play, I'd say, and you have inspired me to begin my own small show on the late origins of Christianity, following the radical criticism of people like yourself, Edwin Johnson, Gordon Rylands, Walter Cassells, Hermann Dettering, the Dutch School, and many others. Bravo! Uh, warming my old heart here. That's uh, mighty glad to see somebody else spreading the good news. Hallelujah. So thanks, Chris. Hmm, let's see here. And this from... I scroll down. I think... Yeah, I think this is from uh, Virachana Ashura, my uh, Hindu pal uh, and a frequent contributor to the Journal of Higher Criticism. Uh, see, uh, in the past on the Bible Geek, you have occasionally discussed religious experiences in a way that is not condescending. I would like to present a minor experience in how I understood it for your consideration and discussion. I was first familiar with Tolkien's The Hobbit from the Rankin-Bass animated version I saw as a boy around 1978 when I was 10. I read the book shortly thereafter, and this was followed by The Lord of the Rings and a few years later, The Silmarillion. As background, I know the character of, Gal of Galadriel is fiction. I did not see all the more recent film versions in the theater. When I did watch The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies from 2014 at home on video, I did not expect the scene where Galadriel banishes Sauron, as this is not in the book. Uh, you can see this on YouTube. Uh, my reaction to this scene was visceral. My hair stood on end, and I had goosebumps and spontaneously started chanting a mantra of victory to the Divine Mother, Shri Ma Jai Ma Jai Jai Ma. This constellated the Durga archetype of the wrathful mother in my subconscious, and this was projected with a powerful emotional charge onto an image that I knew was not only fiction, but not uh, in the legendary matrix as an aspect of Devi, goddess. Um, what would not be understood by those of the Abrahamic faiths is that it does not matter if this is real 
and that does not invalidate the religious experience in itself. This is one of a number of divides between Hindu and Abrahamic thought. The assumption, of course, as opposed to those cynical new atheists who wish to liberate us from such primitive sentiments as I experienced and replace them with censored social media as sacred texts and bad streaming programs on Netflix pushing intersectional feminist Mary Sues as our synthetic goddesses, is that there is something transcendent to man's mental categories there to be projected. Oh yeah, but there is fluidity in how man relates to that mysterious quality, even if one would argue there is a hierarchy of value that applies to that spectrum. To quote one modern Swami, Hinduism is not a historical religion. If somebody were to prove conclusively that Krishna, Rama, and the various gods of the Hindu pantheon never existed, most Hindus would not mind in the least, and the religion would continue to flourish it as, as it has done for so many centuries. However, to the devotees of Krishna, he is as real as any of their friends or relatives or children, depending on how they regard him as friend, relation, child, or lover. Uh, this is from The Complete Life of Krishna, based on the earliest oral traditions and the sacred scriptures. Uh, it's on Kindle. Uh, this is found already in the Krishna tradition in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, 7, 19 through 22. Uh, at the end of many births, the wise man comes to me, Lord Krishna speaking here as Brahman, realizing that all this is Vasudeva, the inmost, innermost self. Such a great soul, Mahatma, is very hard to find. Those whose wisdom has been rent away by this or that desire go to other gods, following this or that right led by their own nature. Whatever form many devotee desires to worship with faith, that same faith of his I make firm and unflinching. Endowed with that faith, he engages in the worship of that form, and from it he obtains his desire, these being verily ordained by me alone. Verily the reward that accrues to those men of small intelligence is finite. The worshippers of the gods go to them, but my devotees come to me. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, it, 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 this reminds me of something that uh, Friedrich Gogarten, a uh, colleague of Bultmann, a German existential uh, theologian, Gogarten said that it's kind of a big cat well he didn't use this term category mistake to ask whether there is a god independent of faith uh, god is meaningful within faith uh, it's it's uh if you uh posit god you've got faith maybe not the most profound or whatever but um you, if you admitted you didn't have faith, but you believed in God, what the heck are you saying? 
that, that you don't, and if you have faith, you don't set it aside to talk about whether God exists. I mean, you, you got that covered already, don't you? Uh, and uh, th- that sort of uh, occurs to me here. Uh, I think of a, a passage in one of the Psalms that God dwells enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Yeah, God is a function of worship. Uh, it's like numbers are a function of mathematics. Uh, and uh, so it, is there a God, you mean, orbiting, like the, the moon orbiting the earth? Uh, I, Tillich would say that's blasphemy. Uh, even to say God exists is blasphemy because that reduces him to a thing that stands out differentiated from the ground of being. And ever since Aquinas, we should have known that God is the ground of being. God is being itself, not a being, much less the supreme being. Now, why and how do we speak of God? Hillick and Bultmann said that uh, mythology is the uh, irreplaceable language of religion. Uh, it, it doesn't describe anything exactly, uh, but it catalyzes experiences of a deeper kind than reason can access. I think Jung would say the same thing. Uh, the archetypes, do the archetypes exist independent of you? Well, not really, uh, but yes, in another way, they do. They're, they're the archetypes of the collective unconscious that everybody shares. Now, how do they do that? Is it some sort of uh, mystical thing? Well, yeah, I guess you can quote different things from different parts of Jung, but I tend to go with Don Cupid's interpretation that Jung is basically just talking about the hard wiring of the human brain similar to what Jerome Bruner talks about as inborn language function. Uh, so, and I've had experiences like this, even not believing in God, uh, still like uh, when I watch uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, there's this scene where they've kind of taken the scene of Jesus rejoining the disciples at the resurrection and placed it earlier at the conclusion of his temptation narrative. So after his 40 days looking wisdom, wizened and grimy, uh, he appears to the disciples who were waiting for him, and they're all stunned. And he holds up this, this primitive axe that John the Baptist gave him to chop down the, the tree. You know, the axe is already laid at the tree's roots, as John says. And uh, he says, he hands it to Jesus in a vision and says, get to work. And so Jesus says to the disciples, uh, once I believed in love, now I believe in this. And the disciples um, all bow the knee to him, including Judas, who finally believes. And he extends his arms like a cross and kneels and says, Adonai. Like, even thinking about that scene uh, gives me the chills even now. Uh, and uh, it uh, that just doesn't presuppose any ontological decisions. 
it, it just creates the, those experiences. And I, I think the I am statements of the Gospel of John do that real well. They're sort of spine chilling. Your brother will rise again. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah right. I, I know uh, the uh, resurrection of the last day. Everybody will rise. No, no, no. I am the resurrection. Boy, somehow that is spine chilling. Um, um, to go to another field completely, you remember uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Uh, it's pretty spiffy when the, uh, the those little globes of light are whizzing around the Devil's Tower and uh, the NASA guys are applauding and they are just thrilled. And the show seems to be over, but uh, behind the, the vastness of the Devil's Tower, suddenly this huge mother ship comes up and they all are absolutely stunned. It's it's the Mysterium Tremendum. Uh, one guy runs to the porta potty to vomit. He just can't stand. The others are sitting there slack jawed and wide eyed. Uh, or when Dorothy and her, her friends see the great and powerful Oz, that's the numinous. You don't have to believe this stuff is actually real. I, I'm not even sure if that makes any difference to the to the pointed issue. Uh, Ronald Ayer, in an episode of the, the documentary series uh, The Long Search, asks a Zen abbot, does the Buddha actually exist? I hear all sorts of opinions out there from Buddhists. And the, the abbot says, well, for those who need him to exist, he exists. But for those who don't, he doesn't. Uh, something's going on there, right? So you can take a phenomenological approach to it that is entirely wholesome as an experience. And uh, I don't think you're kidding yourself. Uh, that doesn't prove anything. But again, who said that's important? Okay. Uh, so bravo. Okay, this is another one. Uh, hello, this is John, the not-disciple. Not to be confused with that other John. Uh, uh, that's why I have that name. Sort of like Judas, not Iscariot. I was listening to the show where my last questions were answered, but before I get to my questions, I wanted to reply to some things you said. When it comes to the view that the ancient gods were just there so you could get a good harvest or win a battle, uh, reminds me sort of a kind of mob boss. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But if you don't, you're in a heap of trouble, so you better praise us. That sort of blunt idea of God seems to change as this God, as the God figure in religions becomes more of a cosmic philosopher figure. Uh, that's just what Magneto says to uh, the senator uh, in X-Men. I've always thought of God as a teacher. Interesting. Uh, see, to me, this reeks of priestly manipulation of the flock, sort of like an ancient world uh, Nigerian prince scam or a you-have-won-a-billion-dollars type of deal. Uh, yeah, though, 
Uh, wouldn't you say that it's the mob boss version of God that has more to do with uh, keeping the faithful and the stupid in line, uh, bullying them into uh, religiosity, uh, but whereas the, the philosopher God or the God of the philosophers is more elevated and less uh, useful to um, to use for priestcraft. Uh, it's, uh, it's more elevated. And in fact, you can see what I'm getting at when you think of uh, African religions, where they tend to believe, many of them, that there was a sky god who created the world, but he got sick and tired of humanity and left. Uh, so he exists in some transcendent form. But in the meantime, we poor mortals are stuck dealing with his subordinates, the heavenly bureaucracy, the god of this, the god of that, you know, in, in charge of this or that department. Uh, that, it seems to me that uh, after a while, the, the cognoscenti um, do not necessarily just have a cynical, manipulative uh, uh lack of belief in God, but it's just a hoax perpetrated. Rather, they've, uh, they realize that this can't be right. You know, if any of this God language means anything, God can't be like this. But it is important uh, that the rubes and slobs uh, listen to those, those, uh, uh, those uh, warnings and threats and so forth. Okay, anyway, um, uh, as for your comments on Karen Armstrong, I got that impression of her when I read her book on Islam. What, what impression was this that I gave? I said, I am not much impressed with her. She is doing a kind of a idiot's guide to religion, and she's a PR person. She wants, she thinks it's more enlightened to say that all the religions are good and all their founders are good and everybody is good. And uh, you, you don't get the whole picture. And she's just like an apologist for uh, militant Islam and anything else. Wouldn't it be nice if everybody could get along? She's like a coexist bumper sticker in human form. Uh, See, okay, uh, the book, while being interesting and a good read, had some problems, most notably her simplifying and watering down various aspects of Islam. There's a lot that she forgets to mention that would change the whole book. Amen. Now, on to my questions. One, were any of the towns Jesus visited real? Uh, for instance, Nain, Cana, uh, and the others. To me, this makes the whole story unreliable and full of holes. I remember Ken Humphreys saying that they didn't exist at all. What says the Bible geek? Well, uh, the great Frank Zindler is also rather skeptical about that. Uh, he, he doesn't think there, well, I should say he thinks there was not a Nazareth or a Capernaum, uh, for instance. And, um, and why is that? Well, I don't have at my fing the fingertips of my brain all the, the uh, evidence for this, but there's a similar claim made by Rene Salm and others that though there was at various times an inhabited town of Nazareth, 
the there is no sure archaeological evidence for that area being inhabited in the time the ostensible time of Jesus, uh, and um, it, it looks like the last period before that time uh, would have been I guess around or before the supposed birth time of Jesus. But then nothing until the middle of the first century CE, when we start finding coins and pottery and all that on the site that you uh, where there are clues to date it. I mean, there's uh, there some things that have been found that people optimistically say really come from Nazareth. Oh, is this Simon Peter's house? Uh, you know, come on. Um, and was this his pontoon boat or his, uh, you know, his uh, water skiing outfit? Uh, and, but uh, so that, that posits that, yeah, maybe there was a Nazareth, but Jesus is incorrectly associated with it because Jesus, uh, the Nazarene, uh, doesn't mean Jesus, the guy from Nazareth. It seems instead to be a sect label. Uh, we're told that there was a Jewish sect of the Nazareans, the observers or keepers of the law, which is the same thing Samaritans say their name means, uh, and that uh, eventually people forgot this, and by the time the Gospels were written, there had been a, a new re-inhabited Nazareth, and the writers sort of naturally made the mistake that, oh, he must have been from Nazareth. Uh, and uh, or they may have understood what Nazarene meant. I mean, in the book of Acts, it's still mentioned as a sect name, right? Paul's accusers say that he represents the sect of the Nazarenes. A sect of people that lived in Nazareth? No, of course not. Um, uh, Capernaum, uh, that's, uh, again, I don't know Frank's uh, argument for that. I have read it, but it uh, it escapes me. But I'd say another one is uh, Mary Magdalene. People say, well, that must have been another name for Magadan, uh, which uh, was a fishing village and so on and so on. Uh, I guess it could be, but I go along with the old theory that uh, the rabbis were right when they said, it's derived from a similar sounding Aramaic word that means hairdresser, which meant madam of a brothel. Because you know, the, the Christians have always said Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. My guess is that is what the name uh, denoted. Uh, but um, they don't like that. So, you know, feminists hate that idea today. Uh, and uh, so they they're quick to say, oh no no no, you're you're uh, disrespecting her. She was uh, uh, she was really uh, the apostle to the apostles, like the Gnostics said. Well, yeah, that that could be. I mean, it could be that um, her opponents just vilified her and said, well, she was a whore. Why bother with anything she teaches? I mean, after all, they, they made her into a sevenfold demoniac, too, right? I mean, that, that implies she was teaching the so-called doctrines of demons. Uh, and um, so, but the thing is, even if that's where it came from, and she wasn't actually a harlot, uh, it, it means that 
it, it, there's no there's no reason to think she was from a place called Magdala, or if there was a place called Magdala, and, and so forth. So I don't I don't remember about some of the other ones, but uh, the uh, but but the whole thing is pretty dubious. Uh, second, why did the Catholics decide to make Peter the first pope outside of the verse which mentions uh, Peter or Petra? being the rock which his name is derived from. That also makes me wonder if his original name wasn't Peter at all. And that also makes me wonder if things would be different had they named Paul or James as the first pope. If I recall, though I could be wrong, I believe the Coptic church named Paul the first pope. Yeah, I, if that's true, I, I don't know about it. It might well be true. I have pretty limited knowledge about the, the Coptic Church. I, I heard a Coptic Pope speak in Bloomfield, uh, New Jersey, when I lived there. Uh, uh, pope Shenouda III, this is before um, uh, they uh, put him in jail in Egypt. Um, I think Anwar Sadat jailed him um, in a persecution. Uh, at any rate... Um, it's it's like each faction of early Christianity in effect had its own pope because Gnostics all claimed that they got their teaching from Paul, though some named others like uh, Mary and Martha or Mary Magdalene or James or Peter or John, son of Zebedee. But um, supposedly they said that their teaching derived from Paul mainly. Did it? Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised. As you know, I think Paul was Simon Magus. But uh, even in the book of Acts, whatever leadership role Peter had in Jerusalem, uh, he forfeited when he left to flee persecution, and James is the head honcho. And he certainly becomes, if you want to use the word, the Pope of Jewish Christianity. And uh, so um, there were, were different figureheads. Uh, and there were probably yet other ones. And I think you're right. There's some question as to whether Peter and Cephas are supposed to be the same guy. I believe in the Epistle of the Apostles, a um, non-canonical work, it lists the twelve, and Cephas and Peter are both listed as if they're different people. Uh, maybe they were. Okay. Uh, third... Uh, what will heaven really be like? Do uh, any Bible writers, I guess you mean, uh, actually know, or is it all up for grabs? Uh, I don't th think they... Uh, they tell you about the new Jerusalem, which seems to be an earthly substitute for heaven, that God has now made his dwelling with uh, men and women on the earth. And uh, everybody is supposedly crammed into the New Jerusalem, which uh, couldn't really hold all the Christians there have ever been, given the dimensions uh, given for it. I mean, there's a, you know, like Ezekiel, uh, there's an angel with a yardstick uh, tracing it off. And, uh, but it, it says that the, uh, there's this this great river flowing there all the time, and that on either bank there are these 
trees of life as in Eden, uh, that bear all manner of fruits all year round. But what are they doing while they're cooling their heels? It doesn't really say. Right, it does say that uh, in the Gospels that nobody's going to be married anymore. Now, that's an odd one. But to me, that implies that family relations will be a thing of the past. And you can kind of see why, because uh, if you called a family reunion, everybody would show up, right, including Uncle Alley-oop. Uh, right. And uh, so, you know, you're related to everybody. And so maybe they decided to just say, well, everybody's going to be an individual in heaven before God, just like they really are now. Right. You got to make your own peace with God. Uh, you can't. We're like uh, David Duplessis, the great Pentecostal diplomat and ecumenist used to say, God has no grandsons. Uh, and uh, but there's precious little said. Now, when people try to say something about it, it gets comical pretty fast. I was at a Unification Church theological conference. I was, I've been at several, and they were really fascinating. Um, there was, I was asked to respond to a paper that was about some elderly Korean lady, I think, who had passed on by then, who was a visionary and, and communicated what she saw of heaven, even in this lifetime. And she said, well, uh, it was sort of like uh, in The Last Temptation when Paul or Saul asks Lazarus what it was like being dead. And he says, well, uh, I was surprised. It wasn't that different. Well, this woman said, yeah, people are driving in their little cars along highways in heaven. And uh, <laughs> and the, uh, the unificationist who was reading this says, we have to find a way that we can take testimonies like this seriously. And I said, why? You know, <laughs> it's... Yes, you're just making yourself the prey uh, of senile fancy. Um, you know, how can you verify this? Well, you can't. And uh, if you uh, thought you could, you'd be the victim of any crazy thing that came along. Uh, but but uh, there's similar stuff. And I forget, was it Washington Gladden or Shaler Matthews, one of the great early 20th century liberal Protestants, who says he thinks heaven will be like a kind of a beautiful, grassy landscape with hills and trees and, and lakes and stuff like this. And again, like, are you kidding me? It, it's like um, when Schleiermacher understood that if there is something after death, well, think of what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, this perishable shall not inherit the imperishable. That doesn't just mean you got to have a resurrected superhuman body so you won't age and die all over again. I mean, that would come in handy. But human existence could not carry on in any way similar to the way it is down here if you're talking about a life in eternity, right? Schleiermacher said it would have to be so different that we just could not imagine it. 
That's what Buddhism says too. There's a great Buddhist parable where this this um, tadpole is talking to his dad, and little Tad is still in the water. Uh, he's got to you know pass through the adult stage to become a true amphibian like his father is. And he says, Dad, uh, tell me what it's like up there. And he says, gee, son, I, I'm sorry, but I can't. Why not? Well, because every word you know is based on a life underwater. If I said, oh, you'll be breathing air, you, you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. You have to wait and experience it. And then you really won't need anybody to tell you. Um, but nobody can until then. Well, yeah, yeah. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 13? Now we see in a looking glass dimly, only then face to face. So the, the idea that, uh, you know, it's just going to be hunky-dory and uh, like, and, and the notion that you will be like God living in an eternal now. Well, if you say that, my friend, welcome to non-dualist Hinduism, because you've made it in one big leap. Uh, that implies that temporal causation is, is just a function of limited perception. It's not real, and, and uh, there is no acting or thinking or linear thought of any kind. And God is beyond that and always has been, except there is no always has been because it, that's temporal too. So yeah, you, you really can't say what heaven is like. And the Bible is pretty much wisely silent on the idea. Now this is assume, assuming that uh, there is such a, an existence. I kind of don't think so. Uh, but again, I... Hope I'm wrong, and uh, how would I know? It's uh, sort of impossible to tell on this side of it. Okay, that's it for another exciting Bible Geek, and um, hopefully I'll do another one real soon. I just put up one uh, today from uh, the other day, and this one won't take too long. I wouldn't be surprised if it were up tomorrow. So keep a lookout for various books by the old geek that are soon to come out, like Judaizing Jesus, which I mentioned earlier, and also um, Merely Christianity, a systematic critique of theology, and When Gospels Collide. How you doing the Bible no favor when you... Tr oh yeah, the subtitle of that one is Contradictions as Revelations. You're doing the Bible no favor by ironing out the uh, the inconsistencies. Well, uh, with that, I guess I shall take my leave and um, I'll see you next time.